All right, well, good evening, and welcome to our fifth installment now of Summer in the Systematics, our summer-long study of bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible. Um, So far in our study, now we're up to having covered four topics. We've covered the authority of the Bible, we've covered the inspiration of the Bible, we've covered the inerrancy of the Bible, we've covered the canonicity of the Bible. Those are the four topics we've covered thus far. And in that session, the canonicity of the Bible, which was two weeks ago, we looked especially, you'll recall it, the marks of canonicity or the characteristics of canonicity. That is why only some books made the cut so that they are now considered to be among the 66 books of scripture that now sit in our laps. Well, tonight we're going to move into a related topic, namely the history, the process of how the canon of scripture formed, putting that in very basic terms, how we got our Bible, what theologians would call the canonization of the Bible. That's our topic for tonight. But because this topic is so massive, this topic of how we got the Bible, we necessarily need to break it into two parts. Uh, So actually tonight, we're looking at the canonization specifically of the Old Testament, and then next week we'll look at the canonization of the New Testament. So to make our time profitable this evening, we need to go over some important definitions and points of distinction. We especially need to drill down on the differences between canonicity, what we studied last time, and canonization, which we'll be studying tonight. Canonicity, here's a definition for you, is the inherent quality of scripture by which it is self-authenticating as having been divinely inspired. It's the inherent quality of scripture by which it is self-authenticating as having been divinely inspired. In other words, canonicity is determined by God. But men have recognized historically what God has already determined, i.e. that the book is canonical. And that's the key word you should think about. We saw this last time. When you think about this topic of canonicity, it's recognition. Men recognized what God had already declared and decreed that these books were in fact canonical. In fact, here's Rene Pache, who says the canon is the fruit of divine inspiration, not the result of human decisions. The canon was not so much a prescribed list of inspired Jewish and Christian books as it was a number of books given by divine inspiration to both Jews and Christians. Because the writings of the apostles and prophets were canonical by virtue of their intrinsic quality, The canon, in principle, existed from the time these books were written, and it was added to with successive appearances of new inspired works. He also says it happened that the church was a long time in expressing its unanimous acknowledgement of certain of the writings, but when it finally came to it, all it did, meaning the church, was bow in recognition of that which already existed. So those are some reminders about this concept of canonicity. Canonicity, as Pache puts it, is the fruit of divine inspiration. Canonization, what we're looking at tonight, is related but distinct. Canonization describes this process by which an ancient book or writing is recognized as being part of the canon, that is, affirmed as divinely inspired scripture. The process, it's a process that we're talking about. Here's how Geisler and Nix define canonization. They say canonization concerns the recognition, there's that word again, and collection of the God-inspired authoritative books of scripture. So the process of canonization then has as its purpose the affirmation of the canonicity of texts which have been included in the canon of scripture. 
Clear enough? I'll say that again. The process of canonization has as its purpose the affirmation of the canonicity of texts which have been already included in the canon of Scripture. One more thought uh, by way of review so that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. This question of what is the canon? What do we mean when we refer to the term canon? Well, F.F. Bruce gives us a good definition. He says, the canon of Scripture is the list of books that belong to the Holy Scriptures and that are reckoned as supremely authoritative for belief and conduct. Or here's J.R. McRae. He says, the term canon in Christianity refers to a group of books acknowledged by the early church as the rule of faith and practice. All right. With that, let's get right into the meat of this evening's message. You're going to have four blanks on your worksheet there if you grabbed one on the way in. And we're going to look at, you'll see, and you can fill these in as we we go. I'll give you a chance here to fill these in right now. We're going to look first at the compilation of the Old Testament canon, the preservation of the Old Testament canon, the witness to the Old Testament canon, and then the boundaries of the Old Testament canon. Nice guy that I am, I'll do those again. The compilation of the Old Testament canon, the preservation of the Old Testament canon, the witness to the Old Testament canon, and the boundaries of the Old Testament canon. Let's start with the first one, the compilation of the Old Testament canon. As we get into the heart of our material tonight, I'm going to start by sketching out some basic details for you. Uh, The Old Testament canon, meaning the 39 books on the left side of your Bibles, was given over a roughly 1,100-year period of time. The process started with the divinely inspired writings of Moses, who wrote right around 1445 BC, soon after the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt. And then that process completed around 400 BC with Nehemiah and Malachi uh, being the last to write. And then after Nehemiah and Malachi, there were the 400 years of silence. That's when those 400 years of silence began, where there was no further prophetic voice in Israel until the days of John the Baptist. Now, what we know is the Old Testament, whether that was legislative Old Testament, the law, whether it was history, whether it was poetical literature, whether it was wisdom literature, it was all composed for a national purpose, which was to define and direct the nation of Israel in terms of its covenant relationship with God. Now, while we know from our study of the doctrine of inspiration from several weeks ago that the Holy Spirit was the author of scripture in the ultimate sense, we also know that God, the Holy Spirit moved men including scribes and shepherds and statesmen, to write the words which we as Christians now know as the Old Testament. That's Second Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, whenever you get into this subject of the canonization of the Old Testament, one of the first questions that you'll inevitably have to grapple with is how to divide up and categorize the Old Testament. We know by the time of Jesus's day, the Old Testament was viewed as having been divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. In fact, that's exactly how the Lord himself expressed it in Luke 24, 44. He says, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And even from an extra biblical standpoint, the Jewish philosopher Philo who lived around the same time as Christ, as you can see here on the slide, 
made a similar threefold distinction in the Old Testament when he spoke of the laws and then the oracles delivered through the mouth of prophets and then the Psalms and anything else which fosters and perfects knowledge and piety. But what I'm surfacing here this evening is is not how the Old Testament was divided in Christ's day or how it was thought of in Christ's day. What I want us to lock in on and what I want us to surface here is how the Old Testament was thought of, how it was divided or perceived as it was being written by those original divinely inspired authors. And to them, I'm going to propose to you, to those original authors in their original context, in some cases writing well over a thousand years before Christ, they really viewed what they were writing as being a part of two groups of writing, not three. That one was the law, that was group one, the Torah, the five books of Moses, And then two was everything else. And what I'll call tonight other historical documents. More specific labels, like the ones Christ would eventually use later in Luke 24, 44, like prophets and writings, that came later. Between the time that the Old Testament was written and the earliest days of Jesus's ministry. So as we take a step back here and remember that we're looking tonight at the process of the compilation of the Old Testament as a whole, we remember that these writings which became the Old Testament were, in their time, considered to be part of one of two groups, either the Law of Moses or not the Law of Moses, which we're calling other historical documents here tonight. So let's start with group one, the Law of Moses. How did the Law of Moses, or the Torah, come into being? Well, we have to start with this matter of audience, who was the Torah written to? Who, who was it written for? Well, it was written for Israel. Deuteronomy 5.1, Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and, and observe them carefully. The law was written for Israel. And what the law did was it provided divine instruction to the Israelite nation about what it meant to keep covenant with God, with, with Yahweh. Exodus thirty four twenty seven says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Or Deuteronomy twelve twenty eight, Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever, for you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So the Ten Commandments... Uh, Exodus 20, 1 through 17, were contained within the Torah. And these words were given directly to the Israelites through Moses by God. We're in the Ten Commandments now. It says, he declared you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. Or Deuteronomy five twenty two. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom with a great voice. And he added no more. Speaking of the Ten Commandments. And then those words of the commandments were said to have been engraved on stone tablets. Exodus 32, the tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. And then the tablets, the previous verse says, were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. And further, Exodus 31 says, these two tablets of stone were written by the finger of God. Now, even though Moses broke these two initial sets of tablets at the base of Mount Sinai when he came upon the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, we have that recorded here, 
Exodus 32. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Or Deuteronomy 9, 17, I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands. This is Moses' firsthand account and smashed them before your eyes. So even though those first set of tablets were broken at Mount Sinai, we know that a second set, also written by God, was restored to Moses for Israel. Exodus 34.1, this is referring to the second set of tablets. What we're covering here, by the way, I hope you're tracking, is just the transmission of the Old Testament law from the tablets, from the finger of God, to where we have it right now. 34.1 of Exodus, now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the, word that were on, the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. A couple verses later, speaking of Moses, so he cut out two tablets, stone tablets, like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. A few verses later, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water, and he wrote in the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And as we saw last time, because of their special divine status, these tablets were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Deuteronomy 10.5 summarizes that. It says, Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the Ark which I had made, and there they are as the Lord commanded me. That's Moses speaking. But Moses not only wrote out the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments we know were just a sliver of the law in its entirety, which Moses also took down from God, the, the law which was communicated directly by God to Moses in those 40 days and 40 nights spent up on the mountain. And that is what led Moses to taking down the words of the law and then codifying them into written form. Here we go, Exodus 24, 4. Speaking of the law here, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 31, 24. Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete. Those words here, the words of this law, is a reference to the five books of the Torah, which were, as we saw last time, to be placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. Now note the distinction that's being drawn here. The law of Moses, the five books, was placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments, which is a sliver of the law, was placed within the Ark of the Covenant, which we see confirmed here in 1 Kings 8. There was nothing inside, nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So that's where the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses ended up when they were first produced, either in the Ark of the Covenant or beside the Ark of the Covenant. And we also know that Moses deposited the Torah, the five books, as a finished work, as a completed work in the Ark or or adjacent to the Ark. Look at Deuteronomy 31, 24. It says, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, 
Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. So the book was complete, and then it was placed where it needed to be placed, adjacent to, beside the Ark of the Covenant. And then these documents, this law, these divine documents continued in that existence, unaltered, all the way up to the reign of King Josiah some 800 years later, somewhere in the 600s BC, which we see recorded when it was discovered during the reign of Josiah here in 2 Kings 22, where Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the law, the Torah, was a completed document when it was placed beside the Ark of the Covenant back when it was first produced. And it was then a very well-preserved document all the way up until the time it was rediscovered in the reign of Josiah. The Torah, the, the law, was not compiled progressively by editors. It wasn't composed at a later date. Both of those are the heart of modern critical scholarship, by the way. No, the law of Moses was given, completed, and established during the days of Moses, and it was preserved from that point forward. The law wasn't a moving target. It was a settled body of legislation that was breathed out and then preserved by God. All right, that's a bit about the compilation of the law, that first category of documents or God-breathed scripture in the Old Testament. What about the other category, what I've called all but the law, or uh, the other historical documents. Well, beyond what we've just looked at, there's actually surprisingly little internal or historical information about how the rest of the Old Testament came together and, and developed into the form that we now know it. We have the books themselves, and we have what the books say about themselves, and we trust and affirm that. We have what the New Testament authors say about the Old Testament books, And we know, as we saw last time, that each of these Old Testament books bears the marks of canonicity, but there is otherwise very little historical information about how these books came to be assembled and eventually recognized for what they are, Scripture. In fact, here's Paul Wegner. He says, there's a great deal of uncertainty regarding when the Old Testament canon was formed. Scripture itself is almost silent regarding how or when the books were assembled. What can be pieced together of its history is gleaned from the few references found in scripture and other literature. But note, it's not as though we have zero evidence as to how these historical books came into being. It's just that the evidence is not as voluminous as you might think it is. That being so, let's go ahead and spend some time looking at the evidence that we do have related to the the books of the Old Testament, the non-law books of the Old Testament. And we'll start with Samuel. An Old Testament judge and prophet, 1 Samuel 10, 25 tells us that Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. Now, in this context where it says placed it before the Lord, that likely means that whatever Samuel wrote was placed, like Moses' writing, beside the Ark of the Covenant. And then it says Samuel wrote of the, the ordinances of the kingdom, which likely means much of the historical material that we see in the book of 1 Samuel leading up to Samuel's death in 1 Samuel 25. And then there's the Proverbs. The book of Proverbs itself teaches us that there was some form of transcription and compilation process. Look at Proverbs 21. It says, these also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 
transcribed. What that's referring to is that under King Hezekiah, apparently there was some sort of committee who read through all 3,000 of, of Solomon's Proverbs and then culled them down to what we now have in the book of Proverbs. And it's also a reasonable conclusion that we have no definite proof of this, that these same men could have been the ones who gathered all the other Proverbs written by other human authors and brought them into what we now know as the book of Proverbs. Then we come to the Psalms. And just as the men of Hezekiah collected and arranged the collection of Proverbs, there is no question that there is some form and there was some form of intentional arrangement and compilation of the Psalms. Now, note what I'm not saying when I say what I just said. I'm not saying that the content of individual Psalms was edited or redacted or otherwise modified by mere human agents. But what I am saying is that there clearly was some sort of intentional arrangement of the existing biblical material in the Psalms. It's just there. You can see it as the Psalms are laid out. The Psalms are not chronologically arranged. Psalm 1 is not the oldest of the Psalms. Psalm 90 is written by Moses. Rather, the Psalms have been arranged very clearly into this five-part hymn book, which is largely divided by author and topic. And then there are the prophets. Some of them wrote before Israel went into exile. Some of them, like Nehemiah and Ezra, wrote after the period of the exile. And the writings of the prophets are marked not only by their historic accuracy, whether that be their geographic references or their genealogies or their census lists, but by their continuity, as each of the writings of the prophets references, many of the writings of the prophets reference each other and build upon each other. Like in Nehemiah 9, it reviews much of Israel's history going back from Genesis to Ezra. Or Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, cites Jeremiah 25. Or Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, cites from the Psalms. Or Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, references Noah and Job, and Daniel. It's clear from the prophets then that they were writing into an established and still growing stream of biblical revelation. And while the paper trail of the origins of the Old Testament is admittedly somewhat thin, we have no reason to doubt that the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of those sacred texts also superintended their collection and their arrangement into what Christians today call the Old Testament. So that's a bit about the compilation of the Old Testament canon. That's our first heading on your worksheet this evening. Let's next look briefly at the preservation of the Old Testament canon. Now, based on what we can find in the historical record, none of the original autographs, the originals of the Old Testament exist today. And they haven't existed for some time now. Right? The, the stone tablets on which God wrote out the Ten Commandments with his finger, the original writings that Moses took down uh, from him from Mount Sinai, they no longer exist. Um, here's F.F. F. Bruce on this subject where he gives some explanation for why that might be. He says, only in such conditions as are provided by the dry sands of, of Egypt and the volcanic ash of Herculaneum have papyrus documents been preserved. In humid climates, and that's speaking of the, the region of Israel, they soon rotted away. So while we can read the original inscriptions of the Assyrian and Babylonian kings, those were written usually on like clay brick. 
The autographs of the Hebrew prophets who were their contemporaries disappeared long ago, as also have the autographs of all the other biblical writers. But those autographs were copied before they perished. And throughout the intervening centuries, they have been copied and recopied continually. That last fact pointed out by F.F. Bruce that the autographs were copied and recopied is going to be the focus of a future lesson in a future week on the subject of textual criticism, which is all about comparing the copies to other copies to trace our way back to the original. But we concede, as we must, that the original autographs no longer exist. Now, since the autographs of the Old Testament are nowhere to be found, and and since even some of the earliest of the autographs have disappeared, it is reasonable to ask, well, what happened? What happened to them? No doubt the originals of the Old Testament were of extremely high value and high esteem to the people of Israel. So much so that, as we've already seen, the law was deposited alongside the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ten Commandments were placed within the Ark of the Covenant. So how did this happen? How did these original works simply disappear or or vanish? There have been a lot of different theories that have been articulated over the centuries. I'll give you a few. One is that the originals were hidden hidden by the Levitical priests as a way to protect them because they were so valuable. But they were so well hidden that as multiple generations died and and then succeeded them, they were never to be found again. It's possible. Another theory is that the original autographs simply disintegrated by ordinary wear and tear, the way that your Bibles disintegrate on your laps after 30, 40 years. Think about this happening over a 1,000 years, especially in the climate of this part of the world. Again, it's possible. Another theory that's been advanced is that the originals, the the autographs were destroyed. Perhaps at the destruction of the first temple or the first destruction of the temple. When the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Judah in 586 BC, which would have included all the royal archives and all the stored documents in the library of that temple. In fact, we have an account of this in 2 Kings 24, speaking of the king of Babylon here. It says he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Perhaps it's not recorded here, but the law was done away with as well, or the the books were done away with. Or it could have happened in terms of the destruction of the original autographs during the destruction of the second temple by the Romans in AD 70. It's possible. But pertinent to our study tonight, because we don't have definite answers on any one of those, is that we have to remember that if God allowed the destruction of the originals of his word to take place, whether it was in the destruction of the first temple or the second temple or simply through ordinary wear and tear, he did so recognizing that copies of his word, not the originals, but copies of his word would be sufficient for us, that we would have what we need through copies, that though we don't have the original autographs anymore, that we have no less scripture than what God designed for us to have. So recognizing that the original autographs no longer exist and recognizing that God deemed possession of the originals as not being necessary for the continuity and the preservation of his word. The next question is, well, what documents do we actually have? What do we have to work with? What do we actually possess? Which documents actually have been preserved over time? And how do those documents present themselves as a a witness to the actual, the original text 
of the Old Testament. That brings us to our third point this evening, which is the witness to the Old Testament canon. The witness to the Old Testament canon. Now, as we're going to see in just a second, the original text of the Old Testament is witnessed to by both primary and secondary sources. Uh, By primary sources, I mean copies, as in original or ancient Hebrew manuscripts. By secondary sources, I mean versions or ancient translations of the Old Testament scriptures. And we have a mountain of evidence of both. We have both tons of primary sources as well as secondary sources, copies, versions, and uh, translations. And what these all do, as we're about to see, is reveal to us the text of the original Old Testament in its various stages of transmission. Now, what we're going to do here, I mean, this is something that we could teach for like 12 weeks to just go through what I'm about to go through. I'm going to try to do it in like 15 minutes. This is all preliminary. This is all survey level material, but we got to do something with it. So we'll start here in terms of the first and primary witness to the Old Testament canon. That would be the Masoretic text. This is deemed universally the Masoretic text in our day as being the traditional text which undergirds and points to the original Hebrew scriptures. The Masoretic text is the text from which all of our English translations of the Old Testament have been derived. And the Masoretic text, it represents a group of closely related ancient Hebrew manuscripts called the Masorah. And that name derives from a school of Jewish scribes known as the Masoretes. And their name derives from a Hebrew verb, masar, which means to hand down. And from about 500 AD until about 1100 AD, it was the job of these Masoretes, these scribes, to copy and edit and preserve the textual traditions that had been handed down to them. And what these Masoretes were working with as they went about their task for those 600 or so years were hundreds and hundreds of ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament, which are now lost To us today. But what they produce, the Masoretic text, has long been accepted as the authorized text as it relates to getting a baseline understanding of the contents of the Hebrew Bible or what we Christians would call the Old Testament. So just file that away. The Masoretic text is the baseline text, the recognized text, the starting point for textual criticism as we seek to understand what was in those original scriptures original autographs. Even then, though, you probably picked it up on this already. Since this Masoretic text is from AD 1000 or so, scholars have had to regularly compare it because it's quite forward in terms of where it sits related to when the original Hebrew scriptures were written. There's a lot of years separating the two. So what scholars have done historically is looked for earlier dated fragments of the Old Testament scriptures and measured the Masoretic text against them and vice versa to make sure that the Masoretic text, because it is so modern, matches up with those older fragments. One of those fragments is known as the Nash Papyrus. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and more on those in just a minute, the earliest example of a Hebrew biblical text that was written on papyrus was this one, the Nash papyrus. W.L. Nash was the secretary of the Society of Biblical Archaeology, and in 1902, in his role, he acquired this papyrus from an Egyptian dealer. 
And then he donated it to the, the Cambridge University Library. And based on the type of script that you see here in this papyrus, it's been dated to somewhere between 169 and 137 BC. So it's right in that time frame, that the intertestamental time frame. And interestingly, this papyrus has an assortment of key passages of the Old Testament. We have Exodus 20 in here, the Ten Commandments. We have the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 in here. And the suggestion is this was probably used for some sort of devotional or liturgical purpose. Well, up until 1948, more on that date in a second, biblical archaeologists and textual critics were forced to work with slivers of material like this, fragments like this one, to inform their reading of the Masoretic text. That all changed in 1948 when a little shepherd boy threw a rock inside a cave near the Dead Sea and heard the sound of breaking pottery. And that brings us to our next witness to the Old Testament, and it's a crucial one, the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, the Dead Sea Scrolls were first revealed to the world in 1948 when that shepherd boy threw that rock into that cave, and what was found later were these scrolls discovered in jars in in 11 different caves and And researchers have done since all sorts of analysis of these scrolls, which were on leather parchment and papyrus. And as they look at the type of script that was used, and as they do carbon-14 testing on these, and based on other evidence they found in these caves, like the dating of the coins that they found adjacent to these scrolls, the conclusion has been reached that the Dead Sea Scrolls were created or, or written out somewhere between 225 B.C., up until around 68 AD. And that's what makes these scrolls so valuable, their age. Because before the discovery of these Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest known intact Hebrew text was something called the Aleppo Codex, which was part of the Masoretic text. But the Aleppo Codex was some 1,300 years removed from the last book that would have been composed by an Old Testament author. We, we saw earlier, the oldest books are, are Nehemiah and Malachi, 400 BC or thereabouts. And the Aleppo Codex was from about 1000 AD. So there's just tons of time between when those original autographs were written and the dating of the Codex or the Masoretic text. So that led to there being natural doubts about potential errors in transmission or mistakes having been made by scribes over 1,300 years or or the possible existence in the Masoretic text, considering how far removed it was from the original events, of errors. Well, doubts like those were laid to rest when in the first of those 11 caves, a scroll of the entirety of the book of Isaiah was found. And that book of Isaiah scroll has an objective dating of 125 BC, meaning it's well over a thousand years older than the Masoretic version of Isaiah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Isaiah proved to be virtually identical to the Masoretic version of Isaiah. There's over a 95% correlation rate. And the differences that you see between the two are things like slips of the pen by a scribe or spelling errors by a scribe and and things of that nature. There's direct correlation. That also proved to be true for the other biblical books that were found in the collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every Old Testament book except Esther is represented in the Dead Sea Scroll 
collection. And in those books, as you compare the Dead Sea Scroll content, which again is really, really old, to the Masoretic text, which is what we've been relying upon this whole time, there is a staggeringly high degree of continuity between the two. And that just speaks to the exceptional preservation of the biblical text through the centuries and validates that the traditional text that we've been using this whole time, the Masoretic text, is a close and accurate witness to what the Old Testament originals would have said. So that's a bit about the Masoretic text, the Nash papyrus, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those, by the way, are what we've called the primary witnesses to the Old Testament. Now we're going to get into some of the secondary witnesses. And as we're going to see, these secondary witnesses, which are really just versions or translations, bear further witness and shed further light on the original autographs of the Old Testament. First is the Septuagint. The Septuagint. Uh, We know the Old Testament was not originally written in Greek, but um, after the conquests of Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C., We do know that many Jews became Greek speakers, and they had a natural interest in having their scriptures translated into their new language, Greek. And around 280 BC, the Egyptian ruler Ptolemy II received a request from the the curator of the library in Alexandria, Egypt, to have the Hebrew Bible in, in his collection, but in Greek. And so what Ptolemy II did is he secured the services of 72 Jewish translators who then translated the first five books of Moses into the Greek language of the day. And then subsequently, the rest of the Old Testament was translated by those translators into Greek, and that translation became known as the Septuagint. There's a legend out there that says that these 72 translators translated everything in the Greek in 70 days. I mean, that's why it's called the Septuagint, that this name Septuagint links to the word 70, but we don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is that the Septuagint is a helpful tool. A helpful tool because, number one, it was frequently cited by the New Testament writers, the New Testament authors, the human authors. Those authors, we have to remember, they wrote in what language? Greek. Koine Greek. And as they quoted the Old Testament, what they would do is heavily rely upon the Greek version of the Old Testament, since that was the language of the day, the the lingua franca. Not only that, though, The Septuagint is beneficial in that it helps us get after even older ancient Hebrew texts. We have to remember that the Septuagint was done in the 3rd century BC, meaning what those translators were using back in the 3rd century BC was some Hebrew Old Testament version that they had from the 3rd century BC, which is way older than even what we have today now that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So by reading through the Septuagint, we can have a witness to what would have been even older Hebrew manuscripts that don't exist today, but the translators of the Septuagint were using, and then measure that against the Masoretic text. The next secondary witness is the Samaritan Pentateuch. And Pentateuch is another word for the law, the Torah, the five books of Moses. And the Samaritans, when they had the five books translated into their dialect or their language. It was limited to the five books. And and all this does is this uh, this Samaritan Pentateuch, it has various columns and annotations to it that provide a useful gloss or understanding of the insights of those who wrote out this translation, which is, again, just something to check against the Masoretic text. 
Next up is the Aramaic Targum. Aramaic, so we have to remember there was a real pervasive influence of the Babylonians in the Near East during the time that the Old Testament canon was being recognized and affirmed. And Aramaic was the language of the Babylonians, and living in a, a world that was dominated by Babylonian influence, the people of Israel eventually adopted Aramaic and, and used Aramaic alongside Hebrew during their, their daily discourses and also in their written works. And one of the products of that, of the Israelites incorporating Aramaic, was this translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, which is called the Targum, which means explanation or commentary. And some of the Targumim, that's the plural for Targum, what they really do is they, they're, they provide commentary. It's like reading a translation or a paraphrase, or they give a lot of explanatory notes on the original Old Testament text. So those notes are just helpful and useful to cross-check against the Masoretic text to get a sense of what was in those original autographs. Next is the Syriac Peshitta. And that, that word Peshitta comes from a word meaning simple or common. And this originally circulated in the first and second century AD in both Jewish and Christian circles. It's a translation into old Syriac, which is an Aramaic uh, spinoff uh, from the Hebrew text. And, and like others, this is just a useful tool to cross-reference the Masoretic text. There are many others that we could go through, and for the sake of time, I should speed through these. You can read Philo, a Greek Jewish philosopher who I've mentioned already, whose quotations from the old Greek version of the Septuagint he was using give helpful commentary on what would have been the original Hebrew text. You have Josephus, first century AD historian and apologist, who wrote these words during his life. He said, we have given practical proof of our reverence for the scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. And it is an instinct within every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them, meaning the scriptures, as the decrees of God to abide by them and if need be, cheerfully to die for them. You can read the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the scriptures, which came into the existence in the fourth century AD through the labors of Jerome, a church father who we see here lived from about 347 to 420. He's known for translating the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into the language of the day for his time, which was Latin. All right, we covered three points so far. The compilation of the Old Testament, the preservation of the Old Testament, the witness to the Old Testament canon. Here's our fourth and final point, the boundaries of the Old Testament canon. Now, by the time of Christ, there were 22 or 24 recognized books in the Hebrew canon. I say 22 or 24 because the number that we would have eventually arrive at has everything to do with whether you would append Ruth to Judges and Lamentations to Jeremiah, or if you wouldn't do that with either of those books. It's 22 if you append those two books. It's 24 if you don't. And we see examples of arrangements showing both. But whichever way you go, 22 or 24, those 22 or 24 books equate in terms of their content to the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament. I'll show you what I mean in a second. As I mentioned earlier, as the books of the Old Testament were being written, 
there were really only these two categories of contents that were being produced. You had the law and you had everything else. And by the time of Christ, as I quoted earlier from Luke 24, there was now a recognized three-part division in the Hebrew scriptures. The law was the first category, the Torah, and that had five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we know. The second category was the prophets, the Nevi'im, which had eight books broken up into two categories, the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The latter prophets were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And here's where you get the rest of that number of books that we know as 39, the 12. We would break them up individually in the Christian scriptures. In the Hebrew Bible, they were considered one book, the 12, one, one roll or one scroll. And then this third category, so you have the law, you have the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then you have the writings, the Ketuvim, which were also broken into two categories. First, the poetical writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job. And then you had the rolls, the Megaloth, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther. So you have the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And they make up the, the acronym T N. K. You put a few vowels between those three letters, T-N-K, and you get this word, Tanakh, which is another term for the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Well, whenever, of course, we talk about the Bible that we study, the Bible that we recognize as being authoritative over our lives, the question that's often asked by the skeptic, and I know we've all heard it at some point, is, why only 66 books? Or limiting it to the Old Testament, why only 39 books? Weren't there other books? Why weren't other books accepted into the canon or recognized as being canonical? Well, as we embrace in our final leg of our study for this evening, it would be helpful for me to note that the writings of the Old Testament period, whether they were ultimately accepted as being canonical or excluded as being non-canonical, have historically been grouped into to four categories. The homo logumena, the anti-legomena, the apocrypha, and the pseudepigrapha. We'll go through each one of these so you can spell them later. But these groupings all go back to the early church historian Eusebius, who came up with these categories sometime around 325 AD. And Let's go ahead and do a brief survey of these now as we look into this matter of the, the boundaries of the Old Testament canon and, and wrap up our study tonight. Let's start with the Homo Lugumina. The Homo Lugumina. These are the Old Testament books which, once they were recognized as being canonical, they were not subsequently questioned or disputed. That word, Homo Lugumina, means the ones confessed. The ones confessed. These were the Old Testament books that were not only received as canonical without dispute at the beginning, but their place in the Old Testament canon was never questioned or challenged by either Jews first or the church later. And included in this category would be every single book of the Protestant English Old Testament, save five. Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Ezekiel, and Proverbs. 
those five books, after originally being recognized as canonical, were subsequently disputed later by rabbis who called into question their canonicity based on their character and their claims. Those five books are the anti-legomena. These were the books that were challenged by the rabbis. And, and historically and customarily, people see this challenge having taken place at this event, which really wasn't only in the year 8090. It was sort of a series of meetings held by rabbis called the Council of Jamnia um, late in the first century AD. And there, those five books were challenged, the ones I just mentioned. Um, Esther was challenged on the ground that it doesn't contain the name of God. Well, that book, of course, very clearly shows God's providential workings in the lives of his people and how that book even culminated in his people being preserved. Ecclesiastes was challenged on the ground that it appears to contain some unconventional teaching. Like Ecclesiastes three nineteen and 20 says, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. All go to the same place. But the context there clearly shows that Solomon is speaking about death in general and the return to dust of any composed body. And elsewhere in the book, Solomon does distinguish between the directions of the spirit of man and that of the animals that they take upon death. Proverbs was challenged on the ground that it was apparently contradictory. In Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, that's that section where it speaks of answering the fool, but not answering the fool in successive verses. But that issue is easily resolved by the fact that ordinarily, as a principle, it is better to ignore a fool. But occasionally, the most suitable reply you can give that fool is to remind him that he is a fool. Song of Solomon was challenged because of its description of erotic love. Well, of course, that objection can be opposed by the fact that the description of erotic love that's given there is within the safety and the confines of God's design for a husband and wife in that aspect of their relationship. Ezekiel was challenged on the ground that it describes offerings and sacrifices, especially in Ezekiel 40 through 48, that are different than some of the Levitical rules in the Mosaic law. And that's, of course, because those chapters in Ezekiel refer to a different time, a different time period, the millennial temple and the associated rituals that will exist in the future kingdom. But the outcome of these debates at Jamnia and other places was about what we would expect sitting where we're sitting today, which is the acknowledgement, ultimately, of the canonicity of each of those five temporarily disputed books. That takes us to our third category, the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha were books that were accepted by some groups as canonical, but not by others. And the Apocrypha, generally speaking, were were religious compositions written somewhere between 300 BC and 100 AD, which were generally circulated under false titles or unsubstantiated claims of authorship. And and by and large, what these books are, are, they're written by pious Jews about persons and events related to the Old Testament and the intertestamental period, in, in that period of silence. And the purpose of these writings, the apocryphal writings, broadly speaking, was to fill in certain gaps in in Jewish history, strengthening the mind of the Jewish individual against the influence of paganism and really extolling the glory of Israel. There are 14 of these apocryphal books, and these books are divided into five categories. First, there's wisdom literature, historical books, religious romance, 
prophetic literature, and then legendary editions. We'll go through each one of these real quick. Uh, First, there's the wisdom literature in the Apocrypha. Uh, There we have the wisdom of Solomon. And that was an attempt to protect Hellenistic uh, Greek-speaking Jews against the pagan influences around them. It presents righteous, practical, legalistic Jewish living in the style of Solomon. This writer is impersonating Solomon. Uh, Ecclesiasticus was dated around 180 B.C., And it's a long 51-chapter treatise on morality and ethics along the lines of of Proverbs. Then you get to the historical books of the Apocrypha. First Esdras, that's sort of a freewheeling version of Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, including this legendary account of the Babylonian captivity and return. Uh, You have First Maccabees, which covers the Jewish wars for independence, and without this book, by the way, we would know very little about the intertestamental period. And then Second Maccabees, that book overlaps time-wise with First Maccabees, but instead of giving a reliable historical account, it gives more of a rhetorical and mythical view of that time period. Then we have religious romance. It's another category of the apocryphal books. We have Tobit. That's a second century story about a rich young Israelite who was captured by Shalmaneser and taken to Nineveh. Now we have Judith. It's a story about a beautiful Jewish widow named Judith, who in the time of the Babylonian invasion of Judah, she disguised herself and killed the Babylonian general. And you have the prophetic literature. Baruch. That's a collection of prayers and confessions of the Jews in exile, which records their hopes of restoration. You have Second Esdras, which, written about 100 AD, contains a collection of varied visions. Then you have the legendary editions. These are another category of apocryphal works. The Prayer of Manasseh. That's supposed to be the confession of the wicked king Manasseh of Judah when he was taken into captivity in Babylon. The remainder of Esther. It tries to be a, an, an augmentation of the book of Esther, the canonical book of Esther, by explaining the various difficulties and showing how God actually was at work in the book. The Song of the Three Holy Children purports to be an addendum to the book of Daniel, and it contains a prayer of Azariah from the furnace. The History of Susanna is a a romance that tells how the godly wife of a wealthy Jew in, in Babylon was cleared of false charges, sort of like a courtroom drama. And then Bell and the Dragon is a melodramatic tale that narrates the destruction of the idols, Bell and the dragon by Daniel. Now, these apocryphal books do serve a purpose, especially in filling some of the historical gaps between the Testaments that we otherwise would have no record of. And they do provide a good survey of Jewish philosophy and the intellect during this time. And they do contain rich and engaging storytelling. So that being the case, why aren't they a part of the Old Testament? Well, there are a few reasons. First, and this is a really simple one, none of these books, the apocryphal books, claim to be scripture. None of them have that self-authenticating nature like we see in the other Old Testament books. There are no statements of, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord. We, We don't have that in the apocrypha. They don't claim to be scripture. Second, the parameters of the Old Testament canon, whether you view it as having 22 books or 24 books, 
have clearly been defined and clearly been confirmed by many historical sources. And each of those sources lists the same 39 Old Testament books that we have today. Not these books, not the apocryphal books. In fact, here's Josephus again in a writing called Against Apion. He says, for we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books which contain the records of all the past times, which are justly to believe, justly believed to be divine. And of these, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the tradition of mankind till his death. This interval of time was little short of 3,000 years. But as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets, there's a second category, who were after Moses, wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books, that all adds up to 22, contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So the historical record doesn't support including the Apocrypha. And then next is the reality that there are significant mistakes and errors in the Apocrypha. Sometimes those are mere chronological or geographical errors. 11 out of the 14 apocryphal books have been confirmed to have those types of errors in them. But then there are the theological problems and the theological errors in those 14 books. For instance, and I should have put this up on the screen, but in Sirach 114, it says, we are told that the righteous are those who were given good souls at birth. So it speaks of the righteous having good souls at birth. No total depravity. In Tobit 12.9, it says that good deeds atone for evil deeds. So it's that weighing of the scales, just trying to be a good person, the way that everybody today tries to get to heaven. And 2 Maccabees 12, 40 and 45, there's open acknowledgement that we ought to be praying for the sins of the dead to be forgiven. Those are just a few of the huge theological landmines in the Apocrypha. Here's E.J. Young on the subject of why not the Apocrypha. He says, there are no marks in these books which would attest to divine origin. Both Judith and Tobit contain historical, chronological, and geographical errors. The books justify falsehood and deception and make salvation to depend upon works of merit. Ecclesiasticus and the wisdom of Solomon inculcate a morality based upon expediency. Ecclesiasticus teaches that the giving of alms makes atonement for sin. I forgot about that one. In Baruch, it is said that God hears the prayers of the dead. And in 1 Maccabees, there are historical and geographical errors. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church, which under its systems and its theology believes that the church creates the canon, not the other way around, they have found religious value in these books for a long time now. So much so that at the Council of Trent in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha to be canonical, with the exception of a few books, 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, and the prayer of Manasseh. Well, we're not Catholic, we're Protestants, so we have a different take, and I agree here with Wayne Grudem, where he says the writings of the Apocrypha should not be regarded as part of Scripture. They do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. We just saw that. They were not regarded as God's words by the Jewish people from whom they originated, They were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. And four, they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. We must conclude that they are merely human words, not God-breathed words like the words of scripture. 
They do have value for historical and linguistic research, and they contain a number of helpful stories about the courage and faith of many Jews during the period of after the Old Testament ends, but they have never been part of the Old Testament canon, and they should not be thought of as part of the Bible. Therefore, they have no binding authority for the thought or life of Christians today. All right, we've looked at the homologumina, the antilegomena, the apocrypha. Last, we need to consider the pseudepigrapha, which literally means false writings, false writings. These are the books that were immediately rejected as being non-canonical. It was never even up for debate. These books are distinctly spurious and inauthentic in terms of their overall content. And it's not that these books are horrific in what they say. They just plainly never measured up to the standards of canonicity that we looked at last time. These books largely represent religious lore of the Hebrews of the intertestamental period, and they fall into four categories. Now, because of how outlandish these are, and because we are totally out of time, I'm not going to attempt to give summaries of each of these like I did with the Apocrypha. You'll have to do that research on your own. But here are the categories of the pseudepigrapha. We have the legendary books, the book of Jubilee, the letter of Aristeus, the book of Adam and Eve, the martyrdom of Isaiah. We have the apocalyptic books, first Enoch, the testimony of the 12 patriarchs, the Sibylline Oracle, the Assumption of Moses, second Enoch, second Baruch, third Baruch. We have the didactical books, third Maccabees, fourth Maccabees, Pirkei Aboth, the story of Ahikar. We have the poetical books, the Psalms of Solomon, and I just love this title, Psalm 151. Sure. So those are the Suda. Pigrapha. Don't ever tell me that I never taught you any fun, big words. All right. We've looked tonight at the compilation of the Old Testament canon. We've looked at the preservation of the Old Testament canon. We've looked at the witness to the Old Testament canon. And now we just looked at the boundaries of the Old Testament canon. Next week, we're going to do the same. But as it relates to the 27 books of the New Testament, let's pray. God, thank you for getting us through this material. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to be reminded of. It's a lot to learn. But I do pray that through it all and in it all, uh, we would be reminded of your providential protection and governance and preservation of your holy word. God, thank you for breathing out your word and giving guidance to its original audience, the the Israelites. And thank you that we, as, as New Covenant believers, can read it, understand it, and see how it relates even to us today. God, it's the same God behind the Old Testament as behind the New. And we acknowledge that we live in a different time and a different era in the church age. And there are different standards and principles that we live by in the New Testament. But all scripture is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed, including these 39 books of the Old Testament. And I pray that what we have gotten tonight is a renewed sense of confidence and a renewed sense of awe that you would do what you've done in giving us your word, namely these 39 books. Thank you for this great day of worship. Thank you for the chance to be with God's people. Pray that you'd be with each one of us in a special way this week, that you'd go before us and strengthen us for whatever you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.